have today uh, Steve Cuss with us. But before we get to that, Garrick, you 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 made it through. The, the yeah, earthquake. and I, I think it's a I think it's a good segue to Steve um, because Steve talks a lot about uh, Edwin Friedman and being a non-anxious presence. That's that's you know a key part of being a good leader. So last night for my family, I had to be a non-anxious presence. Well, as we had ten earthquakes, although some were quite small, but but we had three that were four and up uh, that just kind of blasted through Granada. People were rushing into the streets, and uh, I was able. I think I was able to do a good job of calming my kids and and wife and everything. So non-anxious presence. So that's I think that's a good a good way to start off with uh, with Steve Cuss. Um, I don't know, Barry, if you want to in- introduce a little bit more of Steve. <laughs> we, we are, Steve, we're honored to have you. For everyone who may be listening to this who doesn't know, Steve Cuss is the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety. Steve is also a pastor at Discovery Christian Community, or is that it? Yep, Discovery okay. Christian Church, yep. Yeah, and also the uh, proprietor or director, or I don't know what you want to call it, of CapableLife.me, which is a new tool that you have developed for people, uh, much like myself. I am a member of CapableLife.me, and we'd love for you to get into that for a second. But Steve, thanks for thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I I've just I've realized recently I've I've fallen into the habit of getting on video podcasts without realizing they're video. So I should ask. Are people watching us or just listening no. to us? <laughs> just going to be listening. Just, just listening. That's really just encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at my backdrop behind <laughs> me and just shocking. Yeah. Yeah, no. I don't think anyone wants to see me and Garrick's ugly <laughs> okay, mugs, good. you know? <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. Well, no, listen, we're, we're excited to have you. Um, I don't know when it was, um, and I don't know how it was, that I came across your podcast about a year ago at a time where I was dealing with what I now see uh, a lot of anxiety. I was completely burned out. I mean, it wasn't a year ago. It was probably year and a half ago, I guess. Um, anyway, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I was dealing with incredible amount of burnout. And your your podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety, uh, w- became just a an integral tool in kind of pulling me out of that and understanding where I was. Um, you have, you are Australian, an Aussie living in uh, Colorado, uh, yep. God's country. If, if I were to move back to the US, I would have to move to Colorado. I, yeah, I God God resides in Australia, but he does <laughs> he likes to pop into Colorado for that's sure. Right, right. Yeah. It's his second home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, yeah. His vacation home. Vacation home. Yeah. Yeah. But uh anyway, Steve, um tell us a little bit about um just kind of managing leadership anxiety. It's a book, but also a podcast. Um, a little bit of how kind of your story of where you began to be introduced to the idea of just anxiety in general? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I wrestled with calling any any of my work anxiety because it, it's a provocative word. So certain people are going to hear that and say, oh, that's me. But there's a lot of people who are anxious that will hear the word anxiety, but they're not aware that what they have is anxiety. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it for me. It was when I was a trauma and hospice chaplain, and I was really young. I was twenty four, Aussie as as we have and and should continue to celebrate. Um, and Aussies, we we actually work hard at looking laid back. Like we really value <laughs> this. She'll be right. No worries, you know. And so that was me. Um, but but plunge me into death every day. Put, put me in a room where people are screaming at the top of their lungs in grief. And what, what happens is all the stuff that's under the surface of my awareness in my life bubbles up like a volcano and it just erupts. And, and so one of the keenest things I talk about is uh, I always thought being proactive was a gift, but when I don't know what to do, proactivity is a sign that I'm anxious. If I just like take charge. And that really came to light when I was a chaplain. You know, in, in my early weeks, in fact, my very first encounter as a chaplain, the, I had 12 screaming people. They're all screaming at the top of their lungs. One of them's headbutting a wall. One's vomiting into a rubbish bin. It was, it was unhinged. Wow. I don't know what to do. So I just start taking over, which is the exact wrong thing when you're a chaplain. Really, your job in the first couple of hours of that is just to make sure everyone's physically safe and mm-hmm. hydrated, like literally. 
And so that began for me this fascinating journey, a, a two-part journey. Part one is, oh man, uh, what's happening in me that's infecting my ability to be present and to see what's going on? And what happens with anxiety is it floods you and then it's almost like you wear it like glasses so you can only see through your anxiety and it distorts reality. And so that was a big lesson for me as a chaplain. My job, if I was going to be present to people in pain, was to manage my anxiety so I could see what was really going on rather than react to my anxiety. And there's no question, if, if you're young and you're around death every day and you're helping people die, it's going to make you anxious. You're going to have your own mortality. And yeah. But then the second half of it was equally fascinating was the, the simple idea that anxiety spreads in a group. And so it started for me again as a chaplain, I'd walk into a room and I'd either have to give news or I'd, I'd come in right as the news was being given. And then you'd see all the dynamics in a family. You know, you don't just have the patient, you've got their loved ones. And so I, I, that led me on a, a two decade journey of studying anxiety and people uh, between people. So that's my work. It's inside you and it's between people. Those would be the two categories I help people notice and name. You, you mentioned the, the idea that kind of take charge is actually an anxiety filled response. Um, you know, that, that's not a very American thing to say, is it? Yeah. Um, we, we like someone who takes charge and sure there's times where someone needs to take charge, but what, what is it, what is it about that? That is such a, an anxiety filled response, a, a moment of vulnerability. I recognize that in myself. Um, yeah, that's when right. I, you know, if, depending upon what someone thinks about the Enneagram, I know it's falling on hard times and all, but um, I, it's either, it's either, it's either the devil or it's the new sexy. I'm not sure which it is, but I, I'm, I am, I identify with the Enneagram eight. Uh, and so I, I, I can be a take charge person and that's kind of my default, but I was actually thinking, I was watching my son the other day who is 10 years old and happened to pull down one of his stuffed animals. And I was thinking to myself, you know, he was kind of baby talking it or whatever. And I was thinking to myself, you know, that, that, that impulse in me as a person who values being grown up, because I'm, I'm always eager for my kids to grow up. That's kind of my anxious presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm going to get some free therapy out of this, Steve. That's really why we had you on here. Yeah. And uh, anyway, and so I was looking at him and I remember thinking, man, I wonder, I wonder when that's going to be over. And then the Lord graciously reminded me today as I was walking, you remember that blanket that you used to carry that was in tatters mm-hmm. and you were a lot older than him. So at some point in my life, I learned, I turned a switch that said, okay, I've got to grow up and I got to push this, push this, you know, I got to start taking charge. I became, I became that person. I don't know when it is. That's something I've still got to process through. I'll be calling my counselor later, but what is it about that take chargeness that kind of, it, it masks anxiety, but anyway, go into that a little bit more. Oh, yeah, I I will. I'd I'd like to take us on a diversion and then I'll directly address that. Because what what was going through my head as I was hearing you, like what a gift your son is to you as an Enneagram Mm -hmm. A to learn to play. And so I just pulled up my all-time favorite quote from G.K. Chesterton. I'm just going to read it for us. Chesterton says, because children have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up <laughs> people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making daisies. (laughs) It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, Mm. and our father is younger than we. Mm. I can't read read it without tearing up. But um, but to, to get to your question... Yeah, I, I never want to make a blanket statement. Uh, I, I always try to get pretty nuanced. So it's not, I, I don't mean to say that all proactivity is anxiety. Mm-hmm. It, it, what happens is we default to a reactive response when we're under pressure. 
And so I, I'm just teaching people to notice your reactive responses and then see if you can move them from being an automated reaction to a tool in your tool belt that you can intentionally deliver. And so for me, I'm, I'm an Enneagram 3, I'd identify as. I've been, uh, boy, I've been a firm for being proactive and take charge my whole life. Yeah. But put me in a situation where I don't know what to do and I'll react with proactivity. Like I, mm. rather than see what the situation requires, because I don't know what to do, I don't recognize I'm anxious. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll just take charge. That's what I do. And, and I think the other thing is, and, and faith leaders are really, unfortunately, not good at this. We don't know how to sit in pain with people. Mm. And so when they're in profound, deep pain, we get really anxious. And what we do is we, we, we don't realize we're doing this, but we're actually trying to shrink their pain down to a size we can control. And that's what I was doing in that first case. Like these people, there were 12 of them. They had found out about two minutes before I showed up that their mother had suddenly died unexpectedly. And they were in the stage of grief that we came to call wailing and flailing. They just mm. are making a lot of noise and a lot of movement. And I didn't know what to do. And I was embarrassed because there were families in the waiting lounge that were getting really anxious hearing this family unleashed. And I also saw the disapproval of the charge nurse. She's looking at me like, dude, get it together. <laughs> and I'm a people pleaser. So what happens is I'm embarrassed and I'm a people pleaser. And that is what I'm leading out of. Instead of saying, no charge nurse, you're going to have to wait three hours. Like what I learned after about, when you're a trauma chaplain, you, you are fully experienced in about six weeks. Because mm. we're doing these overnight shifts, 28 hour shifts, and you get, you get everything in six weeks. So six weeks in, I would have said to the charge nurse, look, I'm sorry, you're going to have to manage yourself. This is going to be three hours. And I probably might've even gone out and addressed the, the people in the waiting room and saying, I, I'm sure this is very, just, you know, very distressing to you. Feel free to go grab a coffee we're going to be a while because what that family needed was just time, mm -hmm. but I didn't know any of that. And so I operate out of my anxiety, which is I have to make the charge nurse happy. I have to control the environment. That's, that's my point. So what I teach people to do is to notice these reactive impulses that we think are good and really question them. Is that really, is God, is that God leading you to do that? Or is that just your false self and your need to be mm -hmm. okay? The, yeah. the story that you're somehow telling yourself too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that story that you have to know what to do. Well, during the, during the pandemic, I mean, if I if I can ask, be so bold as to ask you personally, was you as someone who goes, like. I have to, I have to, I have to know what to do. Was your first response because you've obviously done a lot of deep work in order to even write the book, but also just your own personal growth. Yep. Was was your first response, okay, I got to figure out something to do? Or was it, was it, okay, we're going to, I know how to weather this. Yeah. I'm, I'm still anxious every day. Uh, mm. I, I'm not the anxiety guru. I'm not Yoda. Um, however, I have been doing this work for 25 years. Uh, and for me, it's been about survival. It's not about like professional. It's about how do I survive in ministry? And then the other thing for me guys was uh, I'm, I'm tired of hearing faith leaders who proclaim a gospel they don't experience themselves. Mm. And, and it's not a hypocrisy. I, I don't yeah. think it's hip. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's actually a, a sick form of self-sacrifice where we say, well, others are encountering it, so I'll sacrifice my encounter with God. So those, those two drives early on in me, I was like, I'm not going to be that. I want to experience the grace of God I tell others about for my own soul's health. So so this particular specific of proactivity, knowing what to do, this has been a journey of mine for 25 years. So when the pandemic hit, I would say, if anything, we were probably too relaxed. We, we probably could have worked harder. Yeah. Uh, but, but what I did is I, I gave regular updates to my church. Whenever, whatever decision we made when we, you know, we didn't know what to do, is we would say to the church, look, number one, we might be wrong. Um, and so we might come back and say, hey, we were wrong about that. And you might be hearing this announcement right now saying, I think they're wrong. We sh Maybe you're saying they should be meeting or they shouldn't be meeting. But I just named it. So, and, and usually when you name it, you tame it. So, so when I'm telling my whole congregation, we don't know what to do. We're giving it a shot and we might be wrong. It really deflates my own internal pressure. And 90% and of your people will give you a fair shot. And the 10% yeah. that won't, you've exposed them now. Like 
when I get up and I'm vulnerable saying, hey, we don't know what to do. We've never done this before and we might be wrong. The 10% that double, double down on us, we're like, well, now we know who the bullies are. So that helps. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, I, I think here in Sweden, we, we did a lot of the same thing. Um, I think in, in large part in measure because of my own personal journey of coming out of burnout. Um, yeah. I began to see after seeing, gosh, we had a slew of staff just burn out and I started looking at it. And then I started looking at my own life and yeah, I had a busy schedule, but I started to realize really it, it seems to be that it comes, it was coming, my burnout was coming from within that it was a, it was a, I I'm having trouble managing. um, It's kind of like when my kids want competing things and I want to be able to meet both of those, but I know I can only meet one of them. And that's, that's what the kind of, that's the way I would describe burnout in my life. It was, I have these competing things, both of them I want to be able to do, but I'm not going to be able to do that. And just that tearing that happens. And so we ended up taking competing things for you. What were the, well, they were, they could have been tons of things. Um, you know, for, for me personally, it was often, we had some staff issues uh, in, in one particular area where the, the staff to, to a person, incredible people, but we're just having a hard time of it and trying to figure out the way to navigate that. But then also um, knowing that we needed to lead the organization, uh, we were growing, we were expanding to five different cities and knowing that in the expansion, it was causing tension between for, for individual staff who were in those cities. So those two things, making that decision to move forward in expansion, knowing that that's a good thing, but also knowing in one place that caused an unhealthy team situation, that that was just literally ripping me. Uh, and then also just, you know, being a parent. Um, that, yeah. That's, I know nothing more uh, to make me feel more incompetent as a human being than being a parent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those two things, um, it, it was, it was that, that I wanted to be able to meet those needs, but I, I couldn't, um, or I was having trouble because I, I, there was that people pleasing in me that was coming out and that was tough. Um, but anyway, so sorry. So what we did was we, we slowed down big time and we just said, we're going to, we're going to see how this goes. The, I, to me, it seemed like it was, yes, we need to be doing ministry. Sorry, I'm talking to you're the guest. No, this is we great. need to be doing, we needed to be doing ministry, but we also had a staff who were going through this as well. And so we, we had a, there was an element of soul care that we needed to do in the midst of these difficulties. Um, and I'm actually really glad for the way that we ended up. I think it's turned out really well. We had a decrease in ministry and activity, but it actually allowed us to stop for a few minutes and start going, what's the important bits. And we've shed a lot of stuff that's allowing us, I think, on the other side of this to come out well. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with it. Yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, I, so I, but would you, so I want to go to that burnout issue because I'd like to hear more of your thought. You've said this in your podcast, but burnout doesn't seem to be you've got too much on your plate. It does seem to be, would you say that it seems to be kind of a lot, oftentimes that inner, those inner anguishes or, or anxieties that are bubbling up to the surface? Yeah. Yeah, burnout. Most leaders I know like to have a lot on their plate. Most of us get lazy if we don't have a lot on our plate. And I I think as I've talked to so many leaders now, we kind of go feast and famine. We we, we're like, oh, it's too much. And then we get down to zero. And then we're like, oh, I'm not making a difference. No, burnout is always about unaddressed chronic anxiety. It's it's always about uh, depending too heavily on false need. You know, so like if you are a people pleaser, you burn out because of criticism um, and criticism hurts. And I think, I think when you've been in leadership so long, you kind of expect to get over it. Uh, and I, I coach people just to feel it, just to really actually let, let yourself feel it and get through it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, burnout's always about the, the bubbling underneath the surface that you might or might not be aware of. What's been interesting lately, guys, is I've gotten a lot of people asking me, to come on, what you know, whether it's their organization or their podcast or something, and say, "Hey, help us avoid burnout." And I'm always trying to fly the flag to say, "Look, burnout is scary. It also might be the best thing that ever happens to you." And and death, burial, and resurrection is a gospel concept. And and so you might be God might be killing off something in you that you are trying to keep alive. And 
I, I think what disappoints me is how many faithfully to see burnout as the end of the journey rather than possibly the beginning of true freedom. Mm, so I, I well, get it. Burnout's scary. Yeah. Uh, but I, I try to coach people to not be afraid of it. And, and the other thing I found that that's why I'm curious, Barrett, and I don't know if Garrick, if you want to play this game, but I find it hard to know when I'm burning out. It's, it's kind of a nebulous, it's not a, um, yeah. objective set of tests you can take. I think, I think it was a five-year process for me. I mean, mm-hmm. it, cause that expansion was going five years, but the other side of that is what I've come to realize now is the story I was telling myself was I had to be busy building God's kingdom and it was up to yeah. me. So I kept saying, put it on my shoulders, put it on my shoulders and I'm high capacity. Yeah. So I just kept telling myself that lie. Um, and, and it was during that time where I started, you, you talk about a gift. My burnout has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. Not yeah. just because it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to slow down, but I'm actually going to the depths and I'm realizing, Oh no, it's not God help me build your kingdom. It's not, God build your kingdom. It's God. I want to know you. It's yeah, completely right. revolutionized the heart of my ministry and what yeah. I do. Yeah. The uh, there's a I I did a, a doctor of ministry at, at Portland Seminary and one a book we read was a, a book by a Dutch kind of Jeez. business guy named Manfred Ket. Oh, well, his name was Man. I think Ket Ket Ket's de Vries or but mm-hmm. I but he had a book called Leadership Mystique. And he talks a lot about burnout in, in, in that book. And one, one thing, the one thing that stuck with me in that was the idea when you, you can kind of maybe see burnout's coming when you, the things you normally love to do and like to do start, you either stop doing them or they become a, a burden. And that's, yeah. that's because something's going on inside you to where you don't get joy anymore from, from the things you get. So I, I, I happened, I, I, I think I'd gotten pretty close. I was, and I just, it, the, the, the moment that it hit me was I was, in a backyard with some friends they had he one a friend of mine he's a friend with a with a texas singer songwriter guy and they were doing this kind of raise money for his next uh album kind of you know kickstarter thing and i was just sitting there and listening to music with my wife with some friends and and just having a great time realizing i haven't done this i haven't enjoyed something in a long time everything has just been a burden for me it's been it's been anxious or stressful and I, I realized at that point I needed to make some kind of changes in my life. I didn't know exactly what at that point, but yeah. it was that sense of like, wait a minute, I, I, I used to love these things. I used to, you know, and, uh, and so I think that was a, a little bit of where, where I've seen uh, kind of a, the canary in the, the mine for me. Steve, my you dad, have like uh, a list of like life giving things, don't you? Isn't that yeah. one of the things you talk about? Yeah. It's one of my, it's, it's so funny. I almost didn't write about it because it's such an, it felt to me like such an obvious thing. It felt almost elementary and it's probably my most popular tool is a life-giving <laughs> list. My dad's a mechanical engineer. Um, he and my mom, it's a weird story, but they eloped to Canada. They traveled around the world for five years. My sister was born in England, three years into their marriage. My dad worked for Jack Brabham, the Formula One racing champion and, and, uh, Ron Dennis was my dad's boss for anyone who's a motorhead. Ron Dennis kind of built McLaren. And, and so w- when I was born, dad had a small business fixing light aircraft and small Subarus and lawnmowers. But his dream was to be a vintage Ferrari restoration guy. Hmm. And, and, I, and I, I love my dad. And I, I watched him just get bogged down in these tiny engines. And my dad's a mechanical genius. And he no longer enjoyed working on vehicles. He just did, he didn't enjoy what really used to fuel him when he was younger. And I see that happen in faith leaders so much. Like we all got into this because we just enjoy God. We just, yeah. we're being transformed. And then we love helping people experience what we've experienced. And then somewhere along the way, spreadsheets come along and meetings yep. and strategy. Yep. And all of that's necessary. I'm not, I'm not a mystic or a hippie, but it really can... <laughs> It really There's a lot pollute. of truth with those guys, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it can pollute that, that first love. And so the life-giving yeah. list for me is basically what I do is I, I say to a faith leader, look, when you, when you hear the phrase, the gifts of God, what comes to mind? Hmm. And 100% of the time when I ask that question, people say, you know, the spiritual gifts, what Paul talks about, uh, preaching and prophecy and administration and hospitality. 
and, and I'll say to them, yeah, and there's also another set of gifts that Jesus talks about that we have a good father who loves to give us good gifts. What about those gifts? And what happens is most of us, when we think of the gifts of God, we always see ourselves as a, as a conduit, not a recipient. So mm -hmm. Barrett, you even said it, like I'm here to build the kingdom. That's conduit language. God gives me something and I pass it on. But if you had a kid that every birthday and Christmas, no matter what you gave them, they would give it away to someone in need. That's sick. That's sick behavior. <laughs> now, I understand, like in a lot of Western churches, we'd actually make a video testimony about that kid and celebrate him right. as this amazing self. But actually, it's right. sick. Um, if you can't receive a gift from someone who loves you, you've got a big problem. So the life-giving list is, is just I coach people on, it, it takes a couple of hours. Like think of every single gift in your life that God has given you that you cannot twist into ministry. So like I'm a preacher um, and I love reading theology, but I only was reading theology for the pulpit, not for myself. Mm -hmm. But I actually feel close to God when I'm stimulated by a, a great theological thinker. So I, I actually set a stopwatch and I said, okay, 12 weeks of my life, no matter what I read, it's never ending up in the pulpit. It's just God's gift to me. Mm. And what was so surprising is I had a preacher uh, rebuke me for it. He said, you are mm. sinning. I was like, what? <laughs> and he actually made this comment. I'll, I'll, I'll boldly share a name. He said, Tim Keller, he shares everything God gives him. I was like, you don't know that. Yeah, I don't, and don't I don't that. believe that's true. I believe Tim Keller draws, it has a deeper well than he's sharing with us. Yeah. Uh, so, but also simple things like holding my wife's hand is on that list and um, tasting lint chocolate. Like I've got 80 to 90 items on my list. And so when I'm anxious, you know, one of the great fallacies of anxiety is we think we can pray our way through it. And sometimes mm -hmm. we can. And sometimes praying our way through it makes us more anxious. Sometimes prayer is the worst thing you can do when you're anxious. But God has given us other gifts. And so I, I was really anxious. It was about a month ago I got a, uh, a text, hey, we need to meet. It was one of those texts. I don't know if <laughs> oh, you guys get those texts. I'm sure you guys do. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. uh, and, and so I pulled out my life-giving list. And one of the items on my list is an extended hug from my wife. Mm. And so the vulnerability to say to Lisa, hey, I'm anxious. I need, would you just hold me? You talk about childlike, you know, yeah. Yeah. and I become a kid again. And, and then after that, I took my puppy on a walk. And then I talked to God and centered, you know, God centered me in the gospel. What's interesting about that is I came home, that whole process took an hour. I came home completely relaxed in the grace of God. And uh, the person who sent the we need to talk text kind of forgot and so we didn't get to meet for about three weeks and I was fine. Like wow. old me would have been spinning until we met, but I was like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. Whatever they want to meet about will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Cause I, that life, so you're not just making a list of, Oh, these are my life giving things, but you're literally putting that in. You've, you've turned them into next step. Uh, things that leverage you into or or put you into a, a healthy place. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm using it reactively and proactively. Yeah. So when I have a life giving list, and I know that a day of fishing with my friends, I'll cal I'll make sure it's on the calendar. And then in the moment when I'm caught in anxiety, I'm displacing my anxiety with a life giving list. And it's not me doing it. It really is. God gives us good gifts. Like so so. I love music. I, I'm so moved by music and I play guitar. Um, and so five minutes of finger picking my guitar, just playing a song will displace my anxiety. And I, I don't think it's magic. I think it's because God has created human beings in God's image and God yeah. is beautiful and, and music is beautiful. So, so music is a way that I connect to God in worship. And I don't mean singing worship songs. I'm usually playing Paul Simon. Yeah. Um, but it's the musical structure that, that yeah. I don't want to get too nerdy on you guys, but a zebra doesn't stop. And a zebra is not moved by music, but a human is. Why mm -hmm. is that? It's because yeah. we had the divine imprint. So to me, the life-giving list is 90 ways to worship the God who loves me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've recently noticed with music that I, sorry, Garrick, I keep talking over you. I, I, I'm just going to make need, a comment. Garrick, on, you need a, I'm good at this. <laughs> Garrick, you need a bit, you need a better microphone, man. If, if you had a bigger microphone. I know, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to. So, uh, 
<laughs> music for me is is the way that I actually find the real emotion that's in me. Um, I get, I get emotionally constipated. And if I wait too long, I end up just walking around angry because I have passion yep. and anger as my primary emotions. Yeah. So what I've started doing is I, I go on long walks and then I listen to music and all of a sudden emotion will just wash over me. I'll start, I'll release crying and then I can start to piece that out. I can start to go, okay, what's going on in me? Where did that come from? What was it in the music? What was it? And I kind of, but it's this long process. I mean, it takes me almost an hour sometimes to really get through that. Uh, but music is, you're right. It is, it connects with us as human beings. Garrick, you may have the floor. Dang it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think w- one of the things I really love about this book is the, um, you know, well, I'll go two two things here, two comments or kind of maybe questions. But you know, one one is I think I think probably Barrett and I both experience a lot of this, and I think it's very common in ministry. And I think you touch on it a little bit. Is is this? We often feel like we're so necessary. Yes. As, as and especially where, where we work, where there's so few other people doing the job in, in Western Europe, we sometimes yes. feel like oh, and then and then you know we convince people to join us, and then we feel like gosh, we really owe these people. Uh, you know, and, and so there's this kind of um, there's this kind of deep stress and anxiety of of letting the org organization down or people down or the disciples uh, that you 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 know you've worked with for many years letting letting them down and and I see that a lot of people even I still work with because they I can see that they're if they want to make a move or a change they're very nervous to come to us and go hey we feel God's calling us a different direction they feel like it's going to be this you know great. Uh, as opposed to a moment of joy uh, that God is doing something else. Yeah. That's, that's one comment I, I have as, as far as the, the stress of, of sometimes the leadership as Christian, Christian leaders. Yeah. Well, the, the, it takes a while to get there. You know, I do a lot of workshops and it's usually, I try to say, look, nothing less than two and a half hours. If you're going to bring me in, it's at least that because it yeah. takes a while to get into this. But what, where we end up, I've given them some introductory tools to start to notice things. I, I say like the simplest way to know you're in anxiety's grip is you forget that God's in control. Yeah. It's the simplest way. And usually the biggest sign you're in anxiety's grip is you that feeling that it's all on me. I'm responsible. I must. But in the gospel, we're always the reactive. We always, we're always reacting to God's action. Um, and it's funny here in Denver. Um, Cause we are the county I live in is in one of the top 10 unchurched counties in America. And that means that we attract church planters like sharks to blood in a water, like <laughs> young, I, I, I'm going to be stereotypical. So please forgive me. Young Texan church planters just yeah. can't wait yeah. to get. We, we understand. We understand. Sure. It's not stereotypical. <laughs> I went to Texas in August one year for three weeks. My family, we must've visited 20 different families. Everyone was either headed to Colorado or had just come back from Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a massive percentage of church failure rate. Massive. Yeah. Uh, People wouldn't come to my church plant because they knew we were going to fail. They're just waiting. It's it's so what happens in is in Colorado is is you come and you come a few years and then give up and leave. You're inoculating people to the gospel. You're actually doing negative damage. Yeah. So once in a while I'll open my mailbox and there'll be a there'll be a flyer in the mailbox. And you know it's from some Texas Baptist. Again, I'm, I'm making these terrible generalizations, but it'll say bringing God to the front range of Colorado. And I, I think to myself two things. I'm like, you don't know your target audience if you think that's going to bring a Coloradan to church. Yeah. But secondly, uh, we've, we've now got a group of us. We've been here a while. We'll meet with these. We try to intercept them before they get going. <laughs> and, we try, and we try to say, look, we would love for you to come. We will send you people and money. We will we will support because we want you to succeed here. That's in everyone's best interest is if more churches. But secondly, guy, bringing God to Colorado, like Philip Yancey moved here in 1998, I think. So I think, can we agree that God's been here at least since Philip Yancey showed up? <laughs> just the presumption, just the yeah. presumption that thank God I'm here now, God's here. And I would say the same. So, you know, I was raised in an extremely secular culture three to 6% of Australia going to some kind of a church that believes in Jesus and the Bible. And God's presence was, is alive in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm part of the European learning community. So I'm in, before COVID, I was in England twice a year 
where churches from all over Europe gather to learn from each other. There's 90, 90 churches. It's about 500 church teams. Uh, no, I said that wrong. About 500 people and about 90 church teams that gather twice a year. Every one of those churches is growing in some way. So God, God's alive in Western Europe. I don't mean yeah. to, uh, but I think what happens when you're an American is you forget about pre-Constantine yep. and you're just expecting the majority of your culture to be followers of Jesus. But before Constantine, the church was at its best on the margins, yep. small, yeah. small numbers, under pressure, odds against us. So I personally, I get into trouble in America when I talk about this, but I'm personally suspicious of large swaths of believers. And I think what COVID in America, what COVID and the political strife and Black Lives Matter has exposed is how thin the veneer of discipleship is with all the people yeah. we have. Yeah. I, I mean, we couldn't, I, I think both, I'll speak for Garrick a little bit, but both of us couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'm always amazed. I'm privileged to be among the believing community in, in, in Europe. And it's a small but faithful uh, people who, who love Jesus tremendously. Uh, we just finished a great interview with uh, Dutch theologian Stefan Pass, who really hits the nail on the head um, about just church planning in the secular West. And the way he would put it is, you know, you're not looking for, you can get anything, to, you can get things to grow on the tundra, but you have to adjust your expectations. And, uh, and we're just, I, I, that operating from the margins, all of that is just, it's so, so true. Yeah. But there's a lot of anxiety for, and I speak as one, I was that I wasn't a church planner in Colorado, but I was a Texan who arrived in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, but, and it's before that, worse. well, it's and before that, that I, your, yeah. your cultures are so similar. That's what's yeah. beautiful between <laughs> Texas and Sweden. Well, before that I was in Central Asia and then North Africa. And, but I arrived and I thought, well, I'm going to show everyone how it's done because I'm yeah. awesome. And yeah. 10 years later, beating my head against the wall going, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did and the Lord humbling me, but it took well, a lot and, of anxiety to arrive at that. And I, I should point out that impulse in you, I'm going to show them how it's done. You know, that what the way you said it is obviously the shadow side of the gift that's going yeah, to destroy right. you. But there's a positive side to that impulse that you actually showed up that, yeah. that there's a certain personality would say, well, I couldn't possibly have anything to offer in Sweden. I'm not even going to go. So I, I always want to be careful about like I may, I've made a lot of blanket statements about Texas Baptists and shout out to Waco. Uh, <laughs> but, but that impulse that you had the audacity to go to Sweden, that is a gift from God, you know, so it's real nuanced. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You're, you're right. Cause the very thing, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the very thing that is is a, is a downfall is the very thing that got me over here in the first place. Yeah, and God uses. Yes. That's what I'm coming to. This even this anxiety stuff. I'm coming to the realization that that well, God uses the brokenness of who we are in order to bring glory mm -hmm. to Him. It's the brokenness of things that I've gone through that I'm starting. I'm a much you know much more godly father and and hopefully husband and, and and leader because of the even the pain that i've had to go through but it was a it was a painful process yeah, paul, i want to ask paul you says uh paul, paul says my god's power is made perfect in my weakness and we yeah. read that and mm -hmm. we we can't wait for that to be past tense but what yeah. what yeah. if it's always and ever present tense what mm -hmm. would that look like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, would, it would look it would look like my current life is what it would look like <laughs> what well, and I think that's that's something that, that for me was uh, really refreshing about the book. So, you know, I think Barrett and I probably had similar experiences when we, you, you show up, you're, you're here for a while, and then someone finally goes, hey, you're in charge now to some degree, you know, and no one, no one tells you what you're, they kind of tell you what you're supposed to do, and they give you a little bit of training, yeah. but they don't really talk about what does it really mean to lead? And I, I, that's one thing I love about this book. You talk about leading is failing. It's an evalu evaluated experience. It is is learning what to do and learning who to be, and it's it's it's. I think for a lot of young leaders, probably they really need to hear that because I think most people are kind of lost in in. in the, we don't talk. I don't think in the in the Christian world that much about leadership being. It's about who you are and about what you're becoming, as opposed to it's about your competencies right now. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think that's been was it's continuing my leadership journey uh, has been very helpful. This the book in in, in that sense. Yeah, I think we feel so much pressure to be some kind of idealized leader. I think 
one of my favorite things when I, because I enjoy, obviously you can, you can tell I enjoy prov provoking people. Uh, I think we've made a terrible mistake where we try to tell people to be like Jesus. I don't think Jesus ever called us to be like him. I just think he called us to follow him, die mm -hmm. to ourselves, worship him. And we can all do that. And so oftentimes if I'm doing like a seminar or something, I'll, I'll actually get people into groups and I'll say, okay, this group, which of Jesus' disciples is most like Jesus? That's your job. And then this group, what Enneagram number was Jesus? You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> and then this group, uh, this group, make a list of everything Jesus can do that we can never do. And what's funny is, is I, I've stopped doing it because it feels like a sting operation. And I, it's not a good way to gain trust with people, but the whole thing's a farce. Like when people yeah. actually come back and say, well, John is most like Jesus. I'm like, what? No, he's not. He's nothing like Jesus. And then uh, what people do with the Enneagram is they take their Enneagram number and they improve it and put it under Jesus. They'll say, well, Jesus flipped the tables. He's an eight. Or man, he could command a crowd. He's a three. Or he's perfect. He's a one. I'm like, this is absurd. We will never be like Jesus ever. Um, or, or maybe the way I should say it is, the role of forming us into Christ-likeness is God's job. Our job is to die to ourselves. That's all God, God, all God wants from us is follow him, die to ourselves, worship Jesus. And what's fascinating to me is the disciples with all their bickering and, hey, can we sit on the right hand when, when it's all done? And Peter and Paul having a falling out. The gospel spread like wildfire through exactly human-sized followers. And I think young leaders feel so much pressure to be the ideal leader. And I think the sooner you can say to your team, I am an exactly human sized leader. And all God is asking me to be is, you know, not to sound like Oprah Winfrey, but the best me I can be like God made. And if God wants someone smarter than me in this chair, that's God's fault that I'm here. Like until God runs me over with a bus or calls me somewhere else, I'm going to serve faithfully. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. So what I've done with my team is I actually prescribe mistakes because a lot of my team were afraid of getting it wrong. And so I'm the mistake maker in chief. And pretty much my whole church know most of my mistakes because most public, most leaders' mistakes are public. And I'm not talking about the kinds of mistakes where you really shouldn't be in ministry. You know, those giant having an affair, that kind of nonsense, having secret addictions. I'm just talking about leadership mistakes where you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And boy, I make plenty of them. And if God is not okay with the ratio of mistakes I make, God, it's God's fault. I, I get I get real Jeremiah real quick in the Old Testament, like, well, you brought me here, you put me here, you know. <laughs> and it, it just frees me from realizing, like, all God wants from me is to is to experience God's love, learn as I go, try. I, I pray for wisdom all the time. It's the one prayer that we're guaranteed God will answer. So I'm praying for wisdom every day. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've kind of lost your question in my little well, rant there, but I think well, it's great. I, I think, well, because that's the thing, right? Is gosh, this is just for me, that's been coming back for the last 18 months of my, my, my practice now is the first thing I do in the morning is I sit down and I just say, Lord, I want to know your love. And I sit in it for about 30 minutes. I don't do yeah. anything. I just sit and let me tell you for me who wakes up with anxious energy every day. And that's what I've started calling it because it is, there are things to me, there are mountains to be climbed and, you know, castles to be stormed and people to be saved. I got to get on this thing. Yeah. And so for the first act of my day to be a step of faith, to go, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to do this um, has taught me so much more about, okay, Lord, I, I can let go of this situation and I messed up and um, it's going to be okay sort of thing. So I, uh, there, there's so much to that. You mentioned earlier the thin veneer of discipleship. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to answer this, but as a, as a American, so I haven't actually really lived in the U.S. in nearly 20 years, um, but so all of my, I mean, I, you know, I still am American. I still have family, everything else, but yeah. sometimes when you leave your culture, it's easy to see the idols um, yeah. of a culture, but what are some of the idols that you think America and Western Christianity are struggling with? And that Western Christianity may be too broad because there's a lot of cultures to that, but what are some of the idols that, that America or, or in discipleship people really are struggling with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I am most comfortable talking about my own idols. 
because yeah. there, there can be a cheap shot element to it. But I think I'd put the question back to you guys now that you, you know you were born and raised in the United States, you've been away from it long enough to look back in. My suspicion is that American Christians as a general species um, put way more hope in political leadership than any other Western country I've ever experienced. Yeah. So I'd be curious yeah. if that's your take too. Yeah. I mean, personally, um, yes, I would say that we're, we're putting hope. Our chariots and horses are, our political leaders are, um, I would say it's, it's power. Um, so we're hoping that the, we're hoping that the vehicle has become politics, but when I was growing up, it wasn't so much politics. I mean, you know, Reagan was president and everything. And then there was, you know, Bush and then Clinton. But at that time, it was just the hope of power that we would, we would never lose our place at the table. And that was, that was lessening. I I also think that one of the idols in our, our life that, that steers us is fear. Uh, and that could be that could be universal for cultures, but I just see it fear. Uh, you know, you see it with the mask debates. You see it with just different things in American culture. It's just the fear of the unknown or a desire to control. Uh, American life is set up to control your environment. That's the way we go about doing things. So, air conditioning. Uh, an American response to most problems is, well, how can we control this to get the outcome we want? And so we we really. I, I struggle with that personally because I'm, you know, well, let's, let's just make it happen. And, uh, okay, and how can and, we buy our way out really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what, what Eric, we can, we have money. Eric, what do you think? No, I think, I think you're totally right. I, you know, b- being in Spain, uh, it's, we have a, the culture is, 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 you know, very different. The, the idea of control that you can control, uh, life in such a way that it's a little bit more fatalistic culture, uh, is, is not, it's not, it's not part of the culture. I think people are very skeptical of politicians, of the government, of institutions. Maybe sometimes a little too much. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I think I think you're right. I think uh, America, we have a real sense of needing to have power, control. Uh, that our our certain leaders can really lead us into you know always into glory. Uh, so I, I I think that's I think that's very very both are both comments are very astute. Uh, I think correct. I, th- I think also just, there's the money thing. I think people in America we just have a you know, it may go back all the way to what you know, was Calvin Coolidge saying: "The business of America is business," and and we're yeah. we're, we're a, a nation of, uh, you know, people who are able you know to to generate resources, whether for good or for bad or in bad way, yeah. you know, either immorally or morally. But we 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 tend to do that, and I think we always think we can buy ourselves out uh, or buy buy comfort or buy buy. Um, by uh soothing you know we can if, if there's something wrong I, and I, even i still do it it's like well if you know i feel bad today why don't i go buy something you know that's kind of an, an american ex- experience this anxiety you know garrick, garrick yeah. owns a lot of legs of ham <laughs> yeah, it's usually food <laughs> <laughs> he just goes out and just buys a leg of ham and brings it home yeah. his wife says are you, you had a uh, bad day <laughs> i i think you know part of my training obviously it's it's systems theory i i've been yeah. trained to look at recurring predictable patterns in any group of people and then where is that group of people stuck and and the evidence that a group of people is stuck is when they apply more of the same or try harder to anything that's not working. And so I think part of my reticence of calling out idols is American Christianity is in a stuck pattern of uh, controlling our discipleship. Like you guys have Mm. pulled out this idea of control. And I don't think enough people, in fact, this is my next book uh, that I'm working on. I don't think enough people are saying, wait a minute, the culture is discipling us. What a lot of Christian publishing is doing is under the lens of the control of the culture is trying to shame us because we're consumers. So this is getting a little complicated, Mm -hmm. but some of our biggest selling authors are basically saying, Hey guys, they'll either compare American Christians to the book of acts or to China. And you guys know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to name names, but you already know who I'm talking about. And they'll say, look at how they were in the book of acts. See how far we are from what pure Christianity is. Look at how they suffer in China. Now those are true. But they're not giving any credit to the fact that if you have prosperity, if you consume, you you will become what we've become. 
And so then what we do is we read those books and we feel guilty. And then we say, I must try harder. And all those books are doing, in my opinion, is, is squeezing the rope of legalism around our neck. So I'm interested in the conversation of how do you help a consumer-minded, politically trusting Western Christian who's actually a fine human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, This is a person who's generous, loves their neighbor, trying to live their life best. How do you actually help them break free of that nonsense? Because the reason we're not in, like the book of Acts is because we're not living in the Roman Empire. Yeah, And not only that, but how long, how long was it before Acts 2 became Corinthians? Not that long. Like, that's the right. other fallacy that drives yeah. me crazy. And I've been to Western European countries and I've been to developing nations. You know, like my friends who are pastors in the slums of Kenya, the Kenyan, Kenyan people, Kenyan pastors, they would read these books and laugh. They would say, you have idealized us in a way yeah. that is not accurate. We have yeah. the same challenges you do, you know. So I have a real anger about yeah. the way in American Christianity, the the publishing industry, I feel like is complicit in putting people on a treadmill of exhaustion, of spiritual condemnation. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's my next work is how do I I, actually help people look at that? That that sounds fascinating. You know, some of the most uh, materialistic people I ever met were my friends in Tunisia who had nothing. Yeah. But who, given the opportunity, would have had more than most Americans would have accumulated. So materialism yeah. or greed is not a problem of it. Just it's it's a it's an issue of means sometime whether or not someone can satisfy that. Yeah. But here's here's the scary thing. I think God looks at that, and He may very well judge that Tunisian differently than an American, because because it, it he he sees the heart like. Mm-hmm. That's where I kind of go, holy sweet mercy, because he is a righteous judge. Therefore, I, I need grace. Um, are you familiar with James K.A. Smith? Yeah, great yeah, guy. I okay. don't know him personally, but I love his work. Honestly, because what you're talking about is a lot of what he's done. Yeah. Uh, that popular, to, to make that into bite-sized forms is, uh, man, that would be fantastic. I, I look forward to reading your, reading your work on that. Well, well I, and of course, the, the early days of my interest in this was studying missiologists. You guys are a gift because you are you have been trained to look at cultural assumptions. Like you've already been trained systemically. It just may not be called that. But um, I, I was blown away. You know, I was living in America. I was doing my MDiv. And uh, my, my New Testament professor was Ethiopian. And we oh, walk wow. into the first day of class and he says, hey, I tell you what you don't need is another theology book written by a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he took us on a journey of liberation theology, which I know is very controversial, but I then kept that journey and I studied Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal theology. Uh-huh. And oh, wow. I, I was skewered by it because I grew up in an, you know, mixing it up with Aboriginal culture. And, and Anne Patel Gray was the theologian and she skewered my heart, my, race, my mm. unknown racist assumptions. But a couple of things she said, she's like, look, look, uh, if you're an Aboriginal Christian, your job, your mandate is to go to white churches and preach the gospel because they do not have it, which is a very mm. bold statement. Wow. And she said, and she said, what is the gospel for white Australian Christians? She said, Jesus died to free you from having to own anything anymore yeah. because ab- Aboriginals are nomadic at their purest form. They, they believe the idea that they could put a fence around something and call it mine is profoundly disrespectful to God because it's yeah. God's. Um, if, if you're a Crocodile Dundee fan, if I may, um, Crocodile Dundee actually quotes theology accidentally when he says, you know, arguing over whose land it is, is like two fleas on a dog arguing over who owns the dog they're on. That's Aboriginal <laughs> theology. Oh, and yeah. then the second thing she said, which really skewed me, she said, tell white Christians, Jesus died so you don't have to oppress anyone anymore. You've been freed from needing to think you're better than other people anymore. Mm. I was like, whoa. Yeah. That's a beautiful message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, with a, with a, that's the, the fascinating, we're living in an amazing time in the world when there are churches of, well, all over the world, all in, in so many cultures, there's, we have theologians writing from so many different amazing perspectives and really seeing how, how much we all need each other. We all need each other's perspectives and to, to really unify. We, there's so much we can we can learn from each other. Uh, I, you know, but, but, but it's also, you know, you talk about the, the, uh, there's a shadow side. So, you know, and and so I think what maybe that's something that helps us all, I'll see our own shadow sides 
because you know you, you talk about America's need to control and you know perhaps money is an idol, but at the same time America's been the American Christians have been incredibly generous and have the you know have done things. I've ever met. Yeah, it, so there's these there's this dialectic always, and, and that's going on in our own in our own lives often. You know that we're we're struggling with these two poles. And and the incredible American optimism, like you, like I'm all, I, I should be talking about Australian, like my idols, Australian cynicism, uh, tall poppy syndrome, Australian needing to be a rebel against the man. You you know I come to America, and the optimism here is is also what sent you guys somewhere to say, hey, you guys can have this thing too. I mean, America was such an impulse of the primary missions movement in the modern world. So yeah. So yeah, I'm. I don't know. It's it's tough. But I, I, to me, that's fascinating how God uses though that 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 impulse in us that maybe isn't that is sinful, and He puts that sometimes can be sinful. But then there's the non-shadow side of it, which is just it, He lays it out and He uses it and He He blesses those around. It's beauty from ashes, right? I, I think the best news I've ever heard is that God redeems all things. I, I remember in my twenties, yeah. I, I was having some bumps, you know, with, with my dad, just the way I was raised and, and he was doing the best he could, but I wasn't mature enough to know that. And we're really close now, but I remember going through this terrible season in my twenties thinking, what if I'm not in ministry because God called me to ministry? What if I'm, I'm reacting to dysfunction in my own upbringing? And then in my thirties, you know, my, my dad and I really, we're very close. In my thirties, I'm like, oh, how miraculous that God redeemed my dysfunctional mm. upbringing for the sake of the gospel. Like it's all redeemable. So yeah. I just, I rest in, I, I love resting in that. Mm-hmm. So uh, actually that, that's so similar. I've, I've wondered from time to time, am I a missionary? Cause I'm running from something. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and the answer is, yeah, the answer yeah, is, yeah. Right. But yeah. the answer is also the Lord is gracious and he's used those things. And God, God's I, like, I've got this. Yeah. You, yeah. you run as, you isn't run that the as message of Jonah? Want. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Might be my middle name. Randall's my middle name, but I think it's Hebrew for Jonah or no, wait, no. <laughs> running um, away from something. Steve, this is a little bit back to, as, as we're kind of drawn to a close here, this is a little bit back to kind of the burnout question. But if, if burnout is on one end of the spectrum and it kind of begs the question, can burnout actually be avoided? Which isn't my actual question. My actual question is, if you, what is the best way to build up resiliency? Because that's a, a, a buzzword conversation. Um, Todd Bolsinger just you know, really yeah, tempered resilience. Is, great yeah, book. Really, really good. What, what in your opinion, uh, and that actually re- the topic of burnout and resiliency is our most listened to podcast on this. Garrick and I were discussing it and that after that podcast was why I reached out to you. Uh, what in your opinion is the best way to build resiliency, uh, in one's life? My experience with most most faith leaders is we're the last to know when we're not okay. Mm. So I would say step one is to figure out the people in your life who know that you're not okay before you know and believe, invite them to tell you and believe them when they tell you. I think that would be the first step. So Bear, I love what you modeled with your son. Like your first impulse is like, is that okay? And then you had this encounter with God and, and I, I would then mind that. So step one is, how do I know when I'm anxious? And uh, I, I would encourage people to write down the signs mm. and to write down their own unique triggers, people pleasing, having to get it right, feeling the weight of responsibility, all the pressure. And, and I, my just general blanket statement is most of us simply don't dig a well deep enough because we feel starved of resources. We, we don't feel like we have enough money or time. And I think it takes money and time to uh, avoid burnout and build resilience. So I think that looks like therapy or a spiritual director or walking the Camino, uh, whatever it is. But, but you know, as a three, uh, Enneagram three, my idol is productivity. So I must make sure I'm having times of great inefficiency for me to be okay. And I, it's really sneaky because I'll, I'll go fly fishing and if I'm not catching enough fish, I'll go into shame. I'll play my guitar. And if I'm not improving, I, I, my tendency to not just enjoy the gift of the moment, 
but to actually make it another part of my sick three behavior. So I think being, being aware of yourself, Kurt Thompson says to name, we name things to tame things. I think, I think most of us don't change because we internalize. So we'll listen to this podcast or we'll read a book, but you actually have to embody it. You have to say it to somebody. So when I say to my wife, I am anxious and here's why I become less anxious. Uh, when my daughter, she's now 14, but when, when my nine-year-old daughter comes up to me and says, daddy, you told me to tell you when you're anxious, you're anxious right now, dad. And here's how I know. And for me to then say, thank you, rather mm-hmm. than I'm, I've got a lot to do. You don't understand what it's like to be me. Um, yeah. and, and so, so cultivating life-giving habits and, and seeing God in all of the places where God is good to us. I, I think those are critical. Mm. How important, so along, you mentioned the Camino de Santiago, of course, we've kind of chatted a little bit back and forth about that before, but um, there's a phenomenon that happens for those who watch, who, who walk the whole thing. Um, have you, have you walked the Camino? No, okay. it's on my list. We've got a lady in our church that leads, uh, Garrick, I think you know, Lene. Yeah, yeah, I, I met, I met Lene um, a few years back, she was on a walk with, um, with Dave Dishman, with Chris. yes, the so, Dishmans. Yeah. What a what a couple, Dan yeah. and Dawn. Yeah, so I'm familiar okay. So you with know, that. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Wow, great. I've got I've we've I've got a big. I've helped Dave set up a couple Caminos that he's done with. Um, I think two or three. I think I got and um. So I yeah. So I, I met Linnea on um when she came through with uh. Gosh, it was a while. It was maybe three or yeah, four years ago. Three or four years ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So there's a, there is a, um, I feel like our worlds collided in a very beautiful way there. That was, yes, that's, yes. that's fantastic. Dave Dishman. I, Dave Dishman. Uh, who doesn't know Dave? Um, well, so, and, who, and the, if we're doing shout outs, Uli and Nikki Dochi, dear friends of mine right there in Albania. There you go. One of my favorite yeah. countries to visit. Incredible. Loved it. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. loved it. You know, raw, but gorgeous country. Um, oh. Okay. So, a phenomenon happens in the Camino for those who walk the entire thing, especially along the Frances. So there's this section where it's, it's flat and, or flatter. Um, and it kind of becomes, people talk about boring, but it's, it's the Maseta and you just have these miles and miles of open space and a place and it's dead space. And there's a phenomenon that happens that a lot of times people's big breakthroughs and the things that they had just kind of overwhelm them. Some people will just break down weeping and have this sense of release of forgiveness for things they've been struggling with. So I'm beginning to start to think about this, the importance of dead space in someone's life as a way of battling both anxiety, burnout, but also connection with God. How... do you have any opinions on that as far as dead space goes? To me, it seems really important, but I don't know if you, if that's something that you take time for in your own life or yes. what you've noticed. Yes. I think I'm chafing against the word dead. Um, but I love, yeah, I do yeah. love um, the concept and what screams in my mind is Annie Dillard. Uh, you know, I think it was her first book when she was 20 something pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. she just yeah. studied one cubic foot of dirt in in a nowhere place in Virginia, I think it was, and found God's presence mm. all through it. So I I'm a big believer. I'm not a pantheist. You know, God is most present in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But but I do think we see God um, everywhere. And so the mundane and just walking it because it's there to be walked with an openness of what God has to show us in the desert experience in the desert fathers. Yeah. I think it's essential. And what happens is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in an evangelicalish tradition. We're not really quite evangelicals in our movement, but we, we look like them. And so, you know, you do the four pop songs and the 30 minute sermon, everyone mm-hmm, hits a wall mm-hmm. at some point <laughs> in that, and they're looking for something deeper and they discover the desert fathers and liturgy and these other tools that, because what happens in the evangelical churches, you know, Jesus died and then rose again and then time passed. And then sometime around 1976, the church was born. That's kind of our, <laughs> you know, so when we discover that actually there was some pretty amazing things in the middle ages and the early church fathers, we, we find this yeah. whole rich tradition. Yeah. 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 And that's, I guess that's what it harkens to. Well, Steve, uh, you have been generous with your time, my friend. Thank you so yes. much. Uh, for those of you listening uh, stevecusswords.com and the capable life or no, just capable Tell us yeah. real quick about capable life. Cause I, I, I said, I referenced it, but, uh, you didn't, I didn't give you space. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, I've been teaching these tools for 10 years in my local context. And we take we do it slowly over a year. Sometimes people sign up for two years of it. And then the book came out. So my book was based on my class. And I was really resistant because I don't believe you can read your way to transformation. So the book came out and people are really resonating with it. And they're asking for my time. And I end up at an organization for a day or three days or an hour. And, I, and they lo- we have a great time together and then I know nothing's going to change because what they need is an mm. ongoing drip. So we, in yeah. January, it's, it's just three weeks old as of the recording of this. We launched CapableLife.me and it's basically the, the digital online replication of um, my class. So it's 10-minute videos that you can watch one a day, one a week, one a month. You can self-pace. It's monthly Zooms with a coach, which I'm actually starting in 17 minutes will be a, a monthly Zoom. Uh, there's discussion forums. And right now, like I've got like 150 comments and it's global. We have uh, 120 members right now. It's brand new, but they're in seven different nations. So we have a lot of missionaries and it's a chance for you to practice a tool, talk to another peer about it, get coaching. Then we do masterclasses once in a while. We'll take one concept and go really deep for an hour on it. So capablelife.me, 28 bucks a month or 280 a year. I would try to make it so affordable that anyone can do it. Yeah. Well, I am a member. I'm Very looking cool. forward to uh, to seeing you on that space. Yeah. Steve, thank you I for will, your I work. Will thank you for uh, just everything you're doing. I know you're a busy man, yeah. but uh, you made time for us. And hopefully this, this is uh, helpful to other people. Check out the podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And uh, yep. Steve, maybe one day we can walk the Camino, see each other that out would there. Be, yeah. That yeah. would be a treat. And, you know, when I get back to England after COVID, I'm, I'm looking for an excuse to to go visit friends in Europe. So uh, I've, I've got to- You're welcome, welcome in Southern Spain. Wouldn't take much. Always welcome sure. in Spain. Yeah, just come on down. We'll, we'll, we'll show you a good time. I'm sure. Lord bless you, my friend, and buen camino. 